I, I look at Freedom House as being uh, so far ahead of our time that uh, I'm still astonished by it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. I'm Dan Schwester. I have a very, very special guest, uh, one of the pioneers of EMS, uh, and a story that we really didn't get to hear in medic school. Uh, you may have heard of Miami. You may have heard of Seattle. You probably watched the television show if you're of a certain age with the two guys in the red truck driving around saving lives. Uh, but you didn't hear the story of Freedom House. And that's something that we want to correct today. Uh, we're lucky enough to have Chief John Moon with us, who is a retired EMS chief from Pittsburgh. But he was one of America's first paramedics as a member of the Freedom House Ambulance. So, Chief Moon, we're really, really happy to have you here. Thanks very much. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege uh, to have this opportunity to be with you this, today. I think that's ours, but we'll we'll we'll, we'll leave it open for debate. Um, you know, we're just starting to hear the story of Freedom House. Uh, we it, it's been in the background; it always was there, uh, but it was never you know brought out and celebrated. I, I believe until Kevin Hazard's book came out in the last couple months, and the attention that's starting to be paid inside the profession to. Uh, the Freedom House organization, the Medics of Freedom House, and what you actually did. Um, do you find it surprising now after all this time? Or do you think it's do you think it's about time? Um that's two answers to that question. I think it's surprising, but it's about time also primarily because of the groundbreaking uh work that we did uh, roughly about 50 years ago. And um uh, at that particular time, uh, we did not set out to set the standards or to create something different. Um, as you see today, we were primarily doing what I would say caught up in the moment. Uh, we were providing a much needed service uh, to a community. Uh, and in doing so, we were able to create uh, a system uh, that uh, everyone wants to uh, copy or utilize and set standards that we did back then. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a great way to put it. So go, let's go back. How how did you get your start with this? How did you? I know the book goes into some of the detail, but for those who haven't read the book, can you tell us how you got into EMS? What was the situation at the time, and where where was Freedom House in this? Well, uh, Freedom House had been in existence, I would say, somewhere between four and five years uh, prior to uh, my coming on board. Uh, and it was very unique that uh, how it happened, because I was a hospital orderly uh, at the time. And if you um, have any idea what an orderly did at the time, I was kind of constrained to making beds and emptying bedpans and perhaps inserting Foley catheters and washing patients and things like that. So it was um, really, it was important, but it was something inside of me that said, you have to do more. Um, and that break came when I um, 
was preparing a patient to be discharged from home, and two of Freedom House's uh, paramedics came into the room to transport the individual home. And it was something about these two in individuals that uh, kind of struck me to a point where I couldn't take my eyes off of them. Uh, they were two black gentlemen uh, dressed in white uniforms. They had a patch uh, over the left breast and uh, they had a portable radio. And it was just the way they commanded the attention of that environment, the confidence in which uh, those gentlemen worked kind of put me in a mindset that, wow, I have to do that. I have to be one of these two individuals. Um, and I had no idea who they were at the time, but I just happened to see the free uh, patch on their shirt that said Freedom House Ambulance Service. And once they left, they left me with that feeling of wanting to be one of them. And I uh, did a little bit of research and found out where Freedom House's offices were located, which actually was directly across the street from the hospital I was working in at the time. And I went there and um, applied for a position. I walked into the office and I said, you know, how difficult could it be? I'm a hospital orderly. I've been doing this for about four or five years and and I'm ready. I walked in and, and said, I'm here to apply. And the gentleman said, uh, OK, if I gave you a picture of the heart, would you be able to diagram the chambers and the blood flow and things of that nature? I said, uh, no. OK, if I gave you a picture of the lungs, would you be able to outline the respiratory tract and, and from the trachea down? No. Oh, he said, well, you're not qualified to work here. Um, so that kind of struck me, needless to say, in a negative tone, and I was quite saddened by it, to be honest with you. So I left, um, and there was something inside of me that said, okay, this is not the end of this story. Uh, you came here for a purpose, so it's up to you to accomplish that purpose that you came here for. So I, you know, went home, and, and in a sad state, I, I, I did a bit of research and found out uh, where I could get into uh, an EMT program. And I went there for 13 weeks, uh, twice a week. And uh, I passed the written exam and the practical and got my certificate and went back to Freedom House uh, a week later and uh, applied, showed them the certificate and was hired on the spot. Um, normally you would say the rest is history. But on that particular day, it stood out that I was sent immediately from Freedom House's offices to the uniform store to get my uniforms. Oh. And I, I, I picked those uniforms up and, and brought them back. And um, I was assigned to work the 4 to 12 shift. Now, that's interesting because I still had my job as an orderly. So I worked 73 at the hospital and 4 to 12 at Freedom House. And I did that for two years uh, until I became accustomed to wanting to work at Freedom House. And I resigned uh, the orderly job and became a full-time uh, employee at Freedom House uh, on the steady 4-12 shift. There's something, there's a word that comes to my mind and it's resilience. How, how hard was it to get into a, a, a position that really 99% of the, the, the country didn't know? and function in in a medical system and you know ha you had to have resilience you you couldn't you couldn't give up 
And and that's a great way to describe it. Um, my upbringing kind of instilled that into me. Um, in the real life vernacular, a person would look at that as saying, oh, he has such a traumatic life and, and uh, poor John Moon and stuff like that. But I used the trauma that I occurred in my childhood with the loss of parents and the time I spent in an orphanage. I used those as motivating factors to kind of encourage me to always persevere and, and, and be determined no matter what the obstacles that was faced in, in, in front of you. And, and that was the type of life that I'd lived uh, that brought me right into Freedom House. And it was interesting because as I look back at that time, every person that worked there had some type of uh, experience in their life that they could use as an excuse or as a crutch. Uh, but no one there did that. Uh, everyone there that I talked to and that I was a part of, and that's and that's why I feel so blessed to be part of Freedom House, is that we all had parts of our life that 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 one would look at as um, not so good or, or traumatic experience, but we didn't allow those obstacles or barriers or hurdles to determine what we were going to do at the present. In other words, we refused to allow our past to determine our future. And that was the mindset of each and every person that worked there. Uh, we didn't come to work and complain that, uh, you know, I never had a father or, or my mother wasn't there. I didn't have food to eat or whatever issues that we had to overcome. Those were never actually thrown out there as a reason uh, that we had shortcomings. We all use those as motivators. And that's the one thing that I can take from working at Freedom House that I'm very, very proud of. Using things as motivators, um, that's a theme throughout this whole book um, and throughout the whole story because it was almost like you all against the world. Um, everybody being, you know, being an upstart thing, being new to medicine, being of color in, a, in an environment where, yes, the civil rights movement had gone through and things like that, but there was still prejudice. There was still a lot of things that worked against you. Can, can you talk about some of that? And you, I know they talked about it in the book, but you really, you really had to not give up. There were so many things working against you. <laughs> and, and, and you're right. You're absolutely correct. And you, you had the, the, um, political environment that we had to overcome and the the racism that we actually had to overcome, um, the, the problems, uh, even expanding on our training, uh, where we were not uh, allowed to go into the very specialty units of the hospitals and things like that. Um, the OBGYN uh, to learn how to deliver babies and things of that nature. Uh, even the emergency room, um, it was nothing to go into an emergency room and you had your white uniform on and, and um, the nurse would look at you and thought you were in housekeeping or something like that. So they would say that room there needs cleaned and, and things like that. And the ironic thing about that is that we had to blaze that trail um, and those were the hurdles that were put there in order for us to knock down 
overcome or go around them. And, and I think we were extremely successful in doing that. Um, imagine yourself uh, working on an EMS unit and going to a person's home, a, a white individual uh, with a medical problem and them not wanting you to touch them, uh, not wanting you to put uh, electrodes on their chest to check their heart rate, uh, not because they didn't trust you, but merely because of the color of your skin. Um, imagining uh, being told by the um, mayoral administration or the city's administration that you couldn't use your sirens to go on calls in the downtown business district uh, when you're going on emergencies. And, and you know, those are just- Why, why was of, that? Well, <laughs> it, it's a combination of two things. It was a byproduct of, of the political administration there wanting to still gain control of a service that they didn't have control over because it was a private entity, number one. Number two is, don't you think for one minute that when those trucks went into downtown Pittsburgh in the business district, that the people saw who was riding in those and made a determination that how dare they come down here making all that noise, for lack of a better term? We have to stop that. So the way to stop that is to turn to the political uh, arena and have them pass an ordinance or issue a ruling to, to prevent that from happening. That's something that's unheard of today. Fire trucks could use their sirens. Uh, police cars could use their sirens in the downtown sure. district, but not Freedom House which were going on life-threatening calls at that time, so which impacted the response times. So imagine me coming to a heart attack and stopping at a red light, waiting for that red light to turn green again and going to the <laughs> next one and so forth and so on. I would get there two days later. And it, it just sounds absurd, but it actually happened. It, this this is the truth. Um, tell, tell us more about the Hill District and what Freedom House did and how it led to being in conflict with the city in general? Um, because it seems like you had to work against a lot of different entities in the hospital training-wise, but also outside the hospital. It seemed that they were okay as long as you stayed in your district. How do you overcome that? Well, um, in order to do that, you have to look at the overall purpose of why Freedom House was introduced uh, to the Hill. Um, the actual... Freedom House itself was a uh, community organization that was uh, created by James McCoy. And uh, he was a community activist. And um, he created Freedom House with the idea of perhaps opening up uh, doors for uh, job training or employment opportunities or voter registration, or even... Uh, trying to get food to uh, a community that was essentially neglected and underserved by today's standards. Um, we, I, I shouldn't say we, but Freedom House, the business component of it, actually delivered uh, food to residents that didn't have any. And um, as a result of that, a good friend of mine by the name of Phil Hallen, who was president of the Falk Medical Fund at that time, and also was instrumental in providing funding to Freedom House, uh, came up with the idea that 
if they could deliver food uh, to residents of the Hill, why not uh, deliver medical care? Why not deliver transportation for the residents to go back and forth to their doctor's appointments and things of that nature? Uh, you have to keep in mind that we had to rely solely on the police uh, and the relationship with that community between uh, predominantly white police force was not very good at all. So oftentimes uh, when the police got there, when they got there, uh, they took their time. And, and I'm not necessarily bashing the police, but this is a natural fact. Uh, they would place the individual in the back of a, a police wagon, uh, lying them on a canvas cot, and, and both gentlemen would get up front and, and take you to the emergency room. If you stop breathing back there doing that transport or your heart stopped beating uh, in route to the emergency room, or you deteriorated to a point where it was very difficult for the emergency room to uh, help you, oftentimes you were worse off then than you were when they picked you up. Um, and as a result of that, um, Bill came up with the idea that we have to find a way to improve on that type of health care within this community. And uh, he introduced the Freedom House members to uh, Dr. Peter Saffer, who at that particular time was uh, chief of anesthesiologist at the University of Pittsburgh, you know, Pre Presbyterian at that time. Um, and he was doing a lot of research on uh, CPR and whether it was beneficial uh, outside of the hospital and, and things like that. And it was very difficult for him to get the concept out to people to believe. And what more uh, better to marry a group of individuals that were, by society standards, were hardcore unemployables or the least likely to succeed uh, or society's throwaways. That was the label that was placed on us. And the problem I, I often think about is society made one mistake. It didn't tell us that. So we were living in the moment. So you take 25 to 30 people who uh, were marginally employed or unemployed, and, and, and you place them into to a training program using Peter Saffer's ideas of CPR, of bringing the emergency room to the person as opposed to rushing the person to the emergency room. And with the extensive training that you you place these individuals on, uh, they, were un, they were able to create something that had never been done before. Uh, one of the best examples I could use uh, is myself. Uh, picture a lay person walking into an operating room uh, that didn't have an MD behind his name or MPH or uh, a PhD uh, into an operating room and going straight to the head of an individual preparing to have surgery and intubating that person. No one had ever done that before. Yeah, that, that, that was an amazing part of this book and I don't want to give away too many of the spoilers, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. they talk about you you talk about this in the book about having to intubate in an operating theater with a bunch of people standing around all white people, I assume. Yes. And Dr. Safer, and you drop the tube. 
and you have to do it right there in front of everybody before you know it's only i got the feeling like this there was a lot riding on that more than just an airway this was a whole this was a whole thought process that that could have got blown up so you dropping that tube makes a huge difference <laughs> and, and 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 that's true because failure was not an option at that time because if i failed that would give the perception that it's a procedure that paramedics are not capable of doing. So to accomplish that goal at that particular time, um, even though there were people around that were, you know, it was an amphitheater and people were watching, I didn't see them. I knew they were there, but at that time I didn't see them. I was so focused on accomplishing this procedure and, and, you know, I might add, I didn't know that that's what I was going there to do. Oh, wow. I was told to report to the operating room to meet Dr. Safford. And so when I got there, it was almost if this mystical person had walked into the room that they'd never seen before. So all eyes kind of turned on me and I'm standing there not knowing why I was there. He said to the anesthesiologist, get up out of the chair. And, and it, that was no tactful way of him telling them or nothing. Get up. You sit down. I sat there and he said, intubate that patient. And at that time, all the things that I needed, the laryngoscope, uh, the tube, uh, were just lying there on the patient's chest. You had the surgeon standing there all gloved up, waiting to do whatever he had to do for the patient. So the spotlight was on John Moon at that time. And I, fortunately, um, I just intubated the patient in about 15 seconds. And uh, we went from room to room doing the same thing. And, and you know, unbeknownst to me at that time, not less than a week later, I would perform that same procedure out in the field on a patient in their home. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, you know, it, it's it's scary to think had you not got that tube. <laughs> did you ever did you ever think of how things would turn out if that didn't go the way you, it did? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Um, because at that time, um I, I don't want to say that was a certain air of confidence, but you you if you are able to focus on the deed at hand, that's all you see. But it, it never dawned on me until sometime later that if I'd never had gotten it wrong or, or put it into the esophagus, that, you know, I'd have probably been pushed out of the chair onto the floor and, and things like that. But those thoughts never come, never came to my mind. Uh, Failure, not and, an option. No, it wasn't. It, it was a procedure that we had practiced and trained on and okay, you do it. And I think that was the, probably the best way for me to learn that procedure was in a life-saving environment because they had paralyzed the patient and the patient wasn't breathing at all. So the, the person was just lying there and right. Uh, it was say sit down in this chair and intubate that person. Today, 
you know what you're going into, you know what you have to do, you know when and how and things. Sure. And it's it, it's ironic because now you have uh, video intubations and things, things like that, uh, that you can see everything. Uh, I had to expose the cords and move the tongue out of the way and, right. and hyperextend the head and do all of that. So you're right. Failure was not an option. Uh, and I, I never thought about uh, not doing it uh, successfully. Yeah. And it's very interesting that this is like the late 60s, early 70s. And, and Freedom House is one of the only uh, paramedic programs nationwide that's even doing endotracheal intubation at this point. Most people... Uh, if you watch the emergency show, you know, they, they were using esophageal airways because they thought paramedics couldn't do that. Um, and here is this group of men in Pittsburgh who are saying, well, no, that's not true. We can pull this off just as easily as you can. Um, and influencing care down the road for generations of paramedics who, you know, now we look at our laryngoscopes and our tubes and, you know, we don't realize that it was down to a couple dicey things that could have gone either way. Um, it's, it, again, more that this story needs to be out there. Um, so as, so Freedom House is, is established and you're running calls and, you know, you have these police wagons that aren't really caregiving. They're kind of just, we're going to give you the ride to the hospital. And, you know, they're untrained police officers, made no first aid training, no CPR training, nothing like that. Um, you know, this is, this is radical stuff back then. Um, was there, how was, how did things go between the police and freedom? Was it, was it dicey? Was it good? Was it bad? Was it indifferent? It, A combination of all of those, believe it or not. Okay. Um, there were situations where um, the police did not give us the medical calls that we should have gotten in the Hill District uh, because of more likely a perceived threat uh, to their jobs. Uh, so we had to improvise a way to, to combat that. So we bought a scanner and we started monitoring the police calls. And whenever they sent a police wagon or a car to a life there, a medical call or what have you, we, we would self-dispatch um, that call and, and get there uh, before the police. And oftentimes we would pass the police taking the person to the emergency room while they were just in, on their way to the, the call themselves. Hmm. Um, there were even situations where perhaps we would show up at an accident and the police were actually doing inappropriate treatment or care. Uh, and we would voice our uh, concerns or disapproval. And, you know, besides getting cussed at and, and called different names and things like that, you, you, I'm still talking to a guy with a, a gun and a, and a, and a, a blackjack or a nightstick. So I, I really have no other choice but to stand back and surrender that environment to that person. So uh, as a result of that, we uh, I, I guess you can look at it as an antagonistic type of relationship uh, with, with, with the police. And um, 
you know, those are the things that uh, I think we have to kind of keep in mind. It, it, it strikes me that, you know, we still see these things. We still see this stuff going on today. And, you know, the, the amount that you had to put up with to provide a service to a community that you, you even said, like, in the book, like, the police wagons didn't show up or they showed up late or there wasn't any care being provided. And here you are doing something that, you know, look, I would think most cops would be like, oh, this is great. You know, I don't have to lift them. I don't have to put them in the ambulance. This is fantastic. There was an antagonistic uh, thing because there was this threat that you were going to take their jobs. And there was an institutional, maybe there was an institutionalized racism also that, you know, that was there that really made it hard for you to do this job. And it, it's amazing that you did it and you advanced care. Like you guys were developing things that we're still using today, uh, techniques that are still out there in the field, um, stuff that's still part of our scope of practice all started, you know, in a very small number of people. And, and you're absolutely correct. Um, Racism oftentimes reared its ugly head um, when we were uh, involved uh, in patient transports uh, at the scene of calls, uh, as well as uh, in the emergency room itself. Um, I can, uh, you know, give you an example of a particular uh, call that I was on where we transported a individual that had had a syncopal episode and uh, we uh, did a complete workup on this individual and uh, he subsequently um, you know we, we we were able to kind of bring him around and stuff like that and and as a result of that, we did an EKG strip on him. We did vital signs on him and we kind of uh, um, treated him and did an IV and stuff. And we took him to the emergency room. And uh, once he we got there, we took him in and nurse met us in the room and, and things like that. And I, I kind of ran off what was going on with the patient. We got a 25-year-old male who suffered a syncopal episode at work and um, his lung sounds are clear. The heart rate is uh, probably about 80. Uh, the monitor shows a tacky breathy rhythm and uh, just a minor uh, heart problem that he had when he was a child. So as a result of that, we subsequently... Um, transport him and I gave it that report to the emergency room nurse and she bust out laughing. And that was kind of disheartening to me because I had prepared that scenario with our medical director, Dr. Nancy Caroline, en route to the hospital. And what she was doing, and, and we didn't know at the time, and we'll obviously talk about her career, is she was actually preparing us in a way to be received by a environment that we were not wanted in. And once she, the nurse laughed, I got upset. I didn't voice those concerns in the emergency room. I enforced them to our medical director. And I said, I don't even know why we're 
we're learning to do this stuff. Nobody is ever going to listen to us anyway. And she told me, frankly, she said, if you don't learn to speak the language of the emergency room and, and be able to talk to physicians and doctors, no one will ever listen to you. She said, I want you to go back into that emergency room and find a physician and tell him the same thing that you uh, spoke to that nurse about and then come back and tell me how it's received. And I did that. And needless to say, it was very, very well received uh, by this physician because I was speaking the language that they were accustomed to. Whereas, unfortunately, the emergency room nurse was not accustomed to a paramedic or an ambulance coming in, uh, particularly people that look like me, providing the type of care that we brought to them that day. It's it's amazing. I, I, you, I, I, every time I, I read the book a couple of times, I, and just going back, I just can't believe Like, you can't believe it's true, but it did happen. True, um, and we're still running into this in some areas with with some of these issues. But it was so much more acute during the Freedom House era. What what you had to work against. I mean, I, I guess just learning perseverance and learning learning the culture and and it, not demanding, but just I guess yeah, demanding to be treated as a professional, demanding to be treated as you know with respect. Um, as a colleague and as a, as a caregiver and not just the hired help. Um, it's just so, it's just so interesting and it's so foreign to so many of us. I agree 100%. And, and it, it's, it's, it's a tale uh, and you can look at it from a, a, a number of ways from tragedy, tragedy to triumph or from rust to resilience, because that was the makeup of the individuals uh, involved. Um, those hurdles and barriers and, and, and things that we had to overcome, they were there regardless. And oftentimes they were there because of the people that was actually performing them. And we had to be receptive to that. And we knew it, but we, also had to make a decision that we weren't going to allow it to impact on the job that we were actually doing at that particular time, the patient care that we were providing at that particular time. And, and, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but oftentimes as I look at EMS systems today, um, the one example I love to use is, is this country is in an opioid crisis. And, and, and the drug of choice is, is uh, that you, you use to uh, revive the drug overdose is Narcan. Everybody has Narcan. Um, police carry it. Firefighters carry it. Uh, it's in schools now. Uh, you can get right. it over the counter. Even addicts themselves have a supply of Narcan. But what people fail to realize is Freedom House gave Narcan back in 1971 and 1972. We were the very first individuals to take Narcan out of the emergency room or the operating room and take it out into the field to treat heroin overdoses. So to the world today, it's this miracle drug, but it's not new to me. It's not new to anyone that, that actually worked at Freedom House. And that uh, is, is the beauty of it is that we, were such a groundbreaking uh, 
phenomenon that it, it even today, believe it or not, it boggles my mind. I am still in awe of, of even when I think about the stuff that we did back then that that people take for granted now. Uh, it boggles my mind. It really does. How did Dr. Safer and Dr. Caroline later on as the medical directors, how did they facilitate that? Did they explain how your relationship with them kind of also developed the program going forward? One thing I think uh, that's oftentimes missed is that Dr. Safer was as resilient as the members of Freedom House. Um, Freedom House was a testing ground uh, for a number of, of medical individuals that came in and uh, perhaps padded their resume or used us as a proving ground and went on to bigger and better things. Um, Saffer was totally committed to each and every individual there. And that's more evident than him bringing in Dr. Nancy Caroline, who could identify with some of the trials and struggles that we actually went through by being a, a white Jewish female in a predominantly male um, profession. And coming into Freedom House, since we were accustomed to people using us as their stepping stool and moving up to bigger and better things, uh, we, we, we were very cautious. Here's another white person coming in to try to pad their resume and, and, and move on. So Dr. Nancy Caroline had to earn our trust. And in doing that, she and she had to become confident that we were able to perform the job that that we were trained to do. And as a result of those two entities coming together, I, I use the term love-hate relationship, but the love outshined the suspicion that we had at the very beginning. And and she, once she decided that I see what these individuals are going through and I can identify with that, the commitment became overwhelming uh, for her to work. It was nothing for her to work 24 hours a day and sleep in our base station and go on every call and, and monitor every call and wake up in the middle of the night to administer uh, medical direction. Well, why don't you try this drug or try that drug or this treatment or whatever? All hours of the night where everyone else would be asleep. And as quiet as it's kept, the overall concept of a medical director, a medically directed EMS system began right there at Freedom House because that's what prompted what you see today, um, emergency physicians monitoring EMS systems across the country. That's where it began. But she had to prove to us that she was truthful and committed to us. And by doing so, we would take her anywhere. We would follow her anywhere. We would do anything for her. Um, she was able to open doors that we were otherwise not available to get into. 
and I can paint this picture if you can see it. Imagine uh, a five foot two white woman walking down the halls with four black guys with afros and beards and walking right into an intensive care unit, not stopping at the nurse's station uh, to say we're here to observe or whatever, but walking right up to a person's bed and 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 monitoring their heart rate and 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 checking the IV rate and checking the lung sounds on a patient and things of that nature. Those are the types of doors that her and Dr. Sapper were able to open for us that that were otherwise closed um, because of who we were and the way we looked. And she was not afraid uh, to be seen with us. Um, and once that relationship kind of developed and it, it, it meshed, uh, it was like a relationship built in heaven. It really was. And, and even to this day, and, you know, she's been gone a while, both of them have, I can honestly say I still miss them both after all this time, uh, because I, 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 I miss the type of relationship that we had with both of them and, and the types of things that they were able to prove to us that we were capable of doing uh, that people take for granted uh, now. There was a real trust relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it was definitely built on trust. And, and, and once that happened, it became love. It really did. Because it had to go from it. it had to go from both sides. She yes, had to it learn, did. You both had to learn to trust each other, and you both had to learn to work with each other, and that's where you meshed. You're absolutely correct, and and um, it, it 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 didn't take a long time for that trust and relationship and love relationship to um, occur, because we kept watching her. We kept watching her actions with the people. We didn't actually say it, but she was under just as much observation from us as we were from her. So she remember, she had no concept of an EMS system and or no concept of a paramedic because it had not been invented then. So she had to kind of craft a whole, I would say, career path around a, a group of individuals that no one ever thought to achieve the goals that we achieved because we were society's throwaways or the least likely to succeed. Uh, hardcore unemployables, which tells me that nobody would hire you. So I look at that and, and, and I'm still in awe of it right now. Yeah, and it's important for for the the you know the audience that's listening to us, you know, EMTs, paramedics, you know, remember this is a time there's no there's no board certification for emergency medicine. There's no board certification for EMS physicians. Uh, most of your emergency medicine docs were internal med docs were moonlighting in the emergency department. Um, you know, again. Paramedics, what are those for the night for 98%, 99% of the country? This only exists on a TV show on Saturday nights. Um, and you know, Freedom House was doing this before everybody. Um, so if you think that there's some things that you, you know, that are tough to overcome in your system, or there's things that you're you think you're fighting against in the in it and you think it's insurmountable, 
you really got to read the book and kind of understand where this came from and where our profession was 50 short years ago uh, with a group of men in Pittsburgh who are trying to prove that something no one's ever proven before. And and you're absolutely correct. And and, and um, you mentioned the the show Emergency and as groundbreaking as that was, uh, very few people realize that the producers of that show came to Pittsburgh and monitored Freedom House's operations and then took that concept back out to Los Angeles. Um, so it, it's just amazing um, to me that, and, and it's, it's amazing on one end and unfortunately it's sad on the other that um, very few people know where the foundation of EMS really came from. And it didn't come from Miami or Jacksonville or Los Angeles or Seattle. It came from a small black community in the Hill District uh, by a group of individuals that uh, no one ever thought could succeed or amount to anything. And, and that's the phenomenon of, 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 of Freedom House. And, and that's the point that I, I would like the world to understand. And you mentioned required reading. I, I, I would love to see uh, the history of EMS as required reading for every paramedic training, every EMT training program, every emergency physicians program. And um, that is the only way that this legacy that we all left for this country and as well as this world will remain alive. That's a great point. All right. Are you surprised now about the response to the book and about the response to Freedom House, that there's been this upswell, social media all over the Internet? Um, you've been I, you've been asked to talk multiple times. Um, you know, we're not we're not the first by any stretch. But do you, do you feel like it's some kind of vindication or do you feel how do you feel about it? I'm overjoyed. I really am. Um, this is the desires of my heart, um, that this legacy, um, remains alive. Uh, I kind of committed my remaining portion of my EMS career once I retired from the city of Pittsburgh, uh, to try and keep this legacy alive. So, you know, this program does a tremendous amount of, of, of deserves a tremendous amount of credit for helping me do that. So it's very much appreciated. And I, I really can't thank you enough, but it's, you're right. It's long overdue. And, and I, I, this is almost like a, a, it, it's taking on a life of its own right now. And I'm enjoying this ride. And, uh, <laughs> This train has full steam right now, and uh, I want it to continue. So, um, I, I, you know, there's there's a couple of things uh, that that I, I would like to see happen. And and if you look at, you know, if you Google Freedom House, you'll see the offices that Freedom House uh, first began in. I would like to see that building designated as a historic man, uh, monument uh, designation. Um, that no one can 
do anything to it because of the history that it has. Uh, I'm working right now uh, with uh, Pittsburgh EMS to make sure that Freedom House's emblems are on the side of all of those Pittsburgh EMS's paramedic units. Uh, that's uh, a project I embarked on back in the early 90s when I was there uh, to try to keep that part of history alive. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm no longer there, uh, so I kind of have to revisit that issue. Uh, right. One of my main concerns right now is the diversity in EMS. Um, I designed the first diversity recruitment program in Pittsburgh EMS, and uh, it was very, very successful. Uh, unfortunately, once I left, uh, it became not a priority. So these are the things that not only in Pittsburgh, but I would like to see uh, happen a lot, uh, around the country. And, you know, I may be going off course here, but yesterday I went to Washington, D.C. to visit uh, their fire EMS system. Mm -hmm. And it brought me to tears on how diversified that whole service is. Um, it, it, it was, I was just speechless. And, and it was something that I'd never seen before in my life. I mean, and, and they all worked, fire and EMS worked together in such harmony. But that whole, it was like 98% African-Americans or 97% African-Americans in both fire and EMS uh, combined uh, to see young black female firefighters that had been on the job and to me, I thought they were high school kids until they pointed out to me that they'd been on the job for four and five years and they were in a class studying to become lieutenants and captains and battalion chiefs and things like that. I was just speechless. I really was. So I, I those are the types of things that I would like to see during my time is I, I, I really want this to be a diversified uh, project uh, because the the whole concept started with a group, a group of black individuals that laid the foundation for every EMS service that you see. That's uh that's pretty heady stuff. That's uh that's definitely uh, a goal that's worth having. Um, I know that we need to reach out to more of these communities, uh, to communities of color, to young people that. You know, we're 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 in a little bit of a trouble in this uh, profession because we're we're having a shortage of people, and this is the mm -hmm. time to do it. Um, a job that we can go out and help people every day. You know, maybe a little, maybe a lot. Who knows? Um, how? What are some ideas that you have for increasing diversity? How how would you go about doing it if somebody came to you and said, "Hey, chief." My department wants to, you know, we'd like to hire some more people. We'd like to have it more reflect the community we serve. Where would you go? Who do you go to? How did you do it in Pittsburgh? I, I think you just answered that question. And I think the best hook that you could use is by engaging in the community itself. Um, as far as it's kept, the community is your allies. So if you go out into the community and let individuals within that community know that these jobs are available, that you can uh, become one of them. Uh, I think exposure equals opportunity. And that's the one thing I think is, is actually lacking. And um, 
you know, if I, if I could tell you this short story, and I'll try to make it brief. I taught a CPR class in a community that was outside of Pittsburgh, and this was some time ago. And they, I was really into teaching them, and, and I was thinking I was really doing a great job. And they were standing there staring at me like you are now. <laughs> and, and I stopped and said, am I going too fast? Am I talking over your head or whatever? They said, no, we understand everything you're saying. We just have never seen a black paramedic before. So that in itself kind of, it it hit home. And then I had to go into the history of EMS as we see it before, uh, as we see it today and things like that. So I think once you start reaching out to the community and and exposing them to, to this as a career profession, because that's what I did in 1990, with the city of Pittsburgh. I went out into the community to, to job fairs and to community centers and things like that to engage them into this as a profession. And, and Pittsburgh EMS was able to get individuals that had no concept of what EMS was about, bring them to a training program, to pay them to go um, for the EMT part, part of it. And then once they get into the paramedic part, give them a, a little pay raise. And once they finished, they were automatically guaranteed a job with Pittsburgh EMS because the department had invested into these individuals. So that's what you need. EMS systems has to invest in the community. And once you do that, I think those numbers would drastically change because you've also given the individuals uh, in the community an opportunity to to be a part of that department. Tell me, what would you say to a young EMT or paramedic getting into the job today? The job itself, you have to have a compassion for people. And uh, you will get out of that job what you put into it. And it, it's 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 not easy work, but if you place yourself in the position of that individual that you're called to take care of, then I have no doubt that you will do the right thing. Because if that was my mother or my father or me, how would I want the paramedic to do? What would I want them to do? How would I want them to take care of that member of my family? So if you see every patient that you go on as a member of your family, then there's no doubt in my mind that you're going to treat them the right way because it's no different than treating a member of your family. That's amazing wisdom. And it's something that we should all take away from this. And uh, I think that's a great place to end it here with a message of hope and resilience and pushing on through obstacles and achieving, which is what you and your colleagues at Freedom House did. So, uh, Chief Moon, I I really want to thank you for coming on and speaking to us and sharing your story and uh, sharing your wisdom with us. It's uh, much appreciated, and I I know everybody's going to get something out of this. Uh, Thank you for everything you did, and best of luck on moving your mission forward, and uh, we hope to talk to you soon again. And and I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, It makes my heart smile. Uh, just to even be doing this. So I can't thank you enough. And um, I also wish you the best uh, also. Thanks. Okay, everybody. 
uh, I'm just going to end it right here because there's no better way to do it. Uh, so for the overrun, I'm Dan Schwester, and uh, we'll see you next time. Get home safe. <laughs>